Welcome to the First Baptist Church Brunswick podcast. Join us as we desire to lead people into a deep and thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. And I would echo that as well in uh, Pastor Josh, in choir. Let me just thank you for leading us in worship. You know, Pastor, how I know when worship has gone really well before I get up to speak, when I'm sitting there on that pew before I get up, and I'm worshiping, and I'm just talking to the Lord, and then I think, oh my goodness, i got to get up to speak, right? <laughs> like I forgot what I was doing here this morning. So Josh, thank you for leading the worship. Hey, you know, Britton mentioned something that as I came in, I, I told him, I said, man, the vibe when you walk into this room is healthy. Like people are smiling. They look like they want to be here. They're engaging one another. And a couple of things that I've noted, because I am the discipleship catalyst for the convention, is that I travel around the state. I've got six consultants that live throughout, which means nothing to you and you don't care. But what we do is we collect best practices. And what we've known, noticed about churches that are healthy is one is that vibe when you walk into the church. Another is, um, are the senior adults wisdom being spread throughout the congregation? And is their engagement with the younger generation? So when I walked in here and I saw the younger folks leading in worship, and having a face on the stage. Hey, just well done. Love what you're doing here at Brunswick. And, um, and I'm excited about this being a back to school and where we're headed. And this is what I do, folks. I walk around, I travel around the state, and I just try to share truth as best I know that. Sometimes that's not well received. Sometimes it is. It's kind of like, anybody remember Muhammad Ali? You remember he would walk into any place, and when he was in full form, it was flair, it was big personality. I love the story told about when he came into an airplane, he came in, he flopped down on that seat. But he was in just full, full exposure. He's just sitting there hanging out. The flight attendant walked up and said, Mr. Ali, you're going to need to put that seatbelt on so we can taxi on to the runway. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> and she looked at him and said, well, Superman don't need no airplane either. So while you're on this airplane, you're going to wear that seatbelt. Right? Well, listen, I'm going to try as best I can to share truth with you. Uh, some of that you'll like, some of it you may not. But my prayer is that God will use the Word of God from Luke chapter 15 to speak to us today. And as we talk about that, I need you to know this, friends. This really cool vibe that's going on here at First Baptist Brunswick puts you in probably the top 5% of the churches in Georgia because most churches aren't doing well. Did you know in the Southern Baptist Convention, we've baptized 7.1 million people in the last 20 years with zero increase in attendance. 7.1 million people baptized in your convention and zero increase in attendance. And what that means for you is that what Pastor Chris and Britain and your children and youth ministries, what they're trying to do in establishing an intentional culture that is trying to raise up disciples of Jesus and then multiply that out, that, make, that just helps to highlight the importance of that role. Because here's what I know. You will not become a disciple-making church on accident. It's an intentional plan. It is an intentional effort. And one of the really cool things that I'm so grateful that you have Britain in that position that he's in is that at churches, once you get to a certain size, what I would call medium size and larger, You've got to have somebody who is intentionally thinking through the plan and cycling people through 
that process, all right? Now, what I also tell you is this, that connection is not the point of your discipleship at First Baptist Brunswick. Now, some of you, I say that, and you're like, oh, why would you say that? Like, they call them connect groups, and we, we talk about connection, and we want connection to happen in your group. But Christ-likeness is the point of your disciple-making, is the point of your Sunday morning small group. Connection is the first step on the pathway to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, moving towards spiritual maturity. So how many of our group leaders do we have this morning? If you are a Sunday morning group leader, a small group leader, would you stand up for just a moment? Praise the Lord. Let's give them a hand. You can be seated. Matter of fact, I need a volunteer. Brother Jeff, I met Jeff this morning. Would you come up and help me for a moment? Don't y'all appreciate him? Come on up on the stage so everybody, especially those who are watching by home, can see you. Um, so I want to I try to illustrate something for you because here's what we know. When people come to your church, they may come for the big show. They may come because, listen, Chris Winford's one of the best pastors I've ever met in any state, in any convention, okay? So they may come here for that. They may come social media. There's a lot of people, and I've, I follow you guys. On Sunday morning, if I'm not speaking somewhere, a lot of times, like this morning, when I drove a long way to get here, I may watch part of your service through social media. So thank you for doing that as well. But when people are engaging, they may come for the show, but they don't connect in this church through your large group assembly, okay? Your Sunday morning small group, your group setting, that is what I call the thumb of your discipleship. Here's what I mean by that. I'm going to throw this to you, and I want you just one hand just to catch that. Great job, okay? Y'all give them a hand. And Pastor Chris is going to give him a $100 bill after the service. All right, this time, I want you to tuck that thumb under and I want you to catch it, okay? Now, it can't touch your thumb. You can't use your thumb at all. Ready? Okay, well done. But did you use your thumb? It's there. We are in church, Jeff. Thank you. You can be seated. Love you, bro. Hey, here's the point. Your thumb is the grabber. If you've ever tried to live, grab a fork, shake a hand, do anything without your thumb, you'll know that you're not going to do it very well without that thumb. If you've ever hurt that thing and you're trying to do anything, you're, you're really ginger because you use it for everything that we touch and feel and do. Listen, church, the groups in your church is the grabber. That's the connector. You are the thumb of the disciple-making process of your church. And if you're not connecting people well, then you're not going to make disciples well. And listen to me very closely. If we fail at anything in this life, it better not be in the call to make disciples of Jesus. We can fail at a lot of things, but that's the one thing that we can't fail. So turn with me. We're in, uh, sorry, I said Luke, John chapter 15. We're in John chapter 15. And what I want you to see this morning is this. There's a concept here. Because this failure of the 7.1 million and, and, and we're not having increased attendance and the, the failure of really what I believe is the biggest failure of the Southern Baptist Convention in my lifetime is our inability to replicate who we are as disciples of Jesus. 
Okay, the last 40 to 50 years have shown that we are not doing that well. I'm going to share with you a concept, a principle this morning that can change that. So track with me. John chapter 15, we'll start in verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I want you to notice every reference of fruit that's mentioned, no fruit, fruit, more fruit. I want you to note that. You may, if you're one of those that don't think it's sacrilegious to write in your Bible, you might want to underline that because that's very important. I also want you to note the number of times it talks about the word abide, the key of the passage. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you, verse 4. Abide in me as the branch. Sorry, I got off there. So you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. But here's what we see. Jesus is the vine. So he's the conduit. So that source of where we get our strength, our wisdom, the ability to do all that he's called us to do and to be comes from abiding in Christ Jesus. So we've got to remain in there. That's that's who we are. That's what he wants us to do. And then it talks about God the Father is the vine dresser. So he's pruning the branches. And what we know is that he prunes those branches so often and has done that for so long that he knows every intimate detail about that branch. Now listen closely, church. God prunes branches in ways that we don't understand. And sometimes it's painful for the branch. Sometimes we walk a road that, that when we look at human sense, we say, man, that God can't be leading us to do that. But when you look at the stories of Abraham and Paul and many of you in this room would echo that sentiment, but you have to trust the pruning process. Because you'll not get to that, that moment where you're growing towards spiritual maturity without that. Now, there's four levels of fruit bearing that's mentioned in this passage. One is no fruit. You know, this may be that Christian in the, the church who's playing the game and they're, they're naming the name of Jesus, but they're not bearing the cross of Jesus. They don't really want anything to do with sacrifice or serving or doing what it means to be a Christian. They want the benefits. I want to be a Christian because I want God to grow my business. I mean, I really want to, to have a, a healthy family. You know what I think, Pastor, is the greatest addiction in our world today? And if I were to ask you that, and we were to fill out notes, some of you would say alcohol or drugs or pornography. I would disagree with you. I think the greatest addiction in our world today is comfort. We are addicted to comfort. Our lives are lived in such a way that we continue to build on making our lives and our children and our spouses and our situations more comfortable. But here's the question. When you look at the whole of Scripture, did God make people comfortable as he fulfilled his mission? What you'll see in Scripture is that God makes people uncomfortable to get them off the box so that he can do the great works of God. And so that they don't point at you, they point to him as the hero of the story. So you have no fruit. In the second part in verse 2, you see you have fruit. So this is where most believers are. This is where they're having marginal results. May not be consistent results, 
but this is that person that comes to church two or three times a month. They may or may not go to your Sunday morning Bible study. They're probably not a leader on a service team or leading anywhere, but they are showing up in attendance. There's some fruit. You know, they feel convicted when they, when they see that movie and there's stuff in the movie they shouldn't watch. You know, there's some fruit that's there. But here's the, here's the thing about marginal. God never called us to be mediocre in our faith. He called us to excellence. He called us to a 100% all-in type of walk with him. And then you have more fruit. So no fruit, fruit, then you have more fruit. And this is where the person's growing. This is where they look at people at the church and say, you know what? I wish my son could marry a girl like that. Like the, you see a vibrancy in them. There's something there that's just a little bit unusual, right? And it's not because they're a vegetarian. It just means that there's something different about what God's doing in their life. But here's what I also want you to see. Because 99% of Christians, in my opinion, never get to this next point and they never even pursue it. Look at verse 5. I'm the vine, you're the branch, and he who abides in me and I in him bears, what? Much fruit. Not no fruit, not fruit, not more fruit. It's much fruit. This is the wow factor. This is that person that, that is willing and maybe gives up everything. This is the person that is such a complete lifestyle. When you hear that they're a Christian, you hear that they're speaking the gospel, they're leading people to Jesus, you say, no, not that guy, because I went to school with him. I mean, there ain't no way that girl's doing it because I know what she used to be like. That is that life-transforming life story. But did you know, church, those first three are good, but much fruit is where God wants every church member in every church across the globe to be. A much fruit-bearing Christian. Problem is this. Many of us get caught in a rut we, we do the same thing over and over that sometimes we forget why we're doing it. And then sometimes we get married to a routine. Well, don't you mess with so-and-so. We've been doing this since I was a kid. Well, don't touch this. Don't change that name, right? You can't be married to anything but your spouse when you're living this life and walking with Jesus if you're going to be faithful. Let me see if I can il illustrate this for you. How many of you have ever worked in the railroad industry? One of you, praise the Lord. Well, you may know that the United States standard rail gauge, which is the distance between the two tracks, okay? That's the, the United States standard rail gauge. The distance there is four feet, eight and a half inches. Four feet, eight and one half inches. You know how we got that? Because that's the way England did it. And it was the English expatriates who came to America and built our railroad. Why'd the English do it? They did it because they had to build the carriages that their horses were, were uh, pulling, they had to build those to match these ruts that were in the road. Where the ruts in the road come from? The Roman Imperial Empire. Don't miss this. Why did the Roman Imperial Empire build roads that are still there, by the way, 2,000 years old, and they still got these grooves in them, but they were placed there on purpose. Why did they do that? Because four feet, eight and one half inches, is the distance of two horses rear ends. So your United States rail gauge is four feet, eight and one half inches because it's the distance of two horses rear ends. <laughs> I ain't making that up, Google it. 
after church, <laughs> right? Hey, go deeper than that. Anybody ever been to Cape Canaveral and watched the space shuttle launch? The original rocket boosters that would shoot that dude up in the air. Do you know the original engineers desired that they would be bigger and wider? But they couldn't because they had to build them off-site and ship them by railway through an opening in a mountain that was just wider than four feet, eight and one half inches. So the major design feature of the world's most sophisticated transportation system that we've ever known is based on the width of two horses' rear ends. <laughs> you see, it's just, a, it's just an illustration to help you understand that sometimes we do things over and over, and I get it. You know, uh, my dad is one who taught this to me. Because I, I'm the guy in Halton where I came from. I, I shifted the name from Sunday school to life group on Sunday morning, right? I've been there 15 years, so they loved me. They didn't crucify me. But they didn't like me, right? And my dad caught me one day after church, and he said, Son, we just need you to know, like, we're not against changing and shifting and trying to do what we do better. But we just need you to know that my generation, this is part of our identity. Like, what we do in the church, we feel like this is who we are. We feel like we are in some ways kind of guarding that so the next generation doesn't come in and, and make it worse. We want you to build on it, but you don't want you to make it worse. So here's what happens. It creates a tension between where you are, between where you're going, and that is where the leadership of your pastor, you have to trust it. And you've got leaders in there that he's got a sounding board, that he's, that he's walking through that process. So you have Jesus as divine. God the Father is divine dresser. And then in verse 5, we see that Christians are the branch. And the, and the branch can only produce as much as the vine provides. Here's what I want to do with our time that's left here. As we talk about abide, that word literally means to remain or to stay. And here's what's ironic about that. Okay, and I'll tell you my story here in just a minute. The word to remain or to stay in Christ rarely allows you to stay where you are in life. It's like, it's like backwards. It's just this tension to remain in Christ. He loves you too much as an individual, as a family, and as a church to leave you where you are. God is going to do things that are going to create discomfort in you so that he can create greater gospel impact through you. That's the way disciple-making, discipleship works. That's where our, our walk with the Lord is. And God forbid that we get to the back half of our life and we focus more on comfort than we do on Christ. Because if you'll focus on Christ, he'll do things that you never thought were possible. So let me do this. What does it look like to be a genuine, abiding disciple of Jesus Christ? Let me give you three things this morning. First one is this, they've experienced a genuine conversion. Now I'm going to start with this because I am a believer and you've heard the Billy Graham quote and others talk about how there are a number of people in the typical local church that are saying they're a Christian, but they're really not. And what I would say to you is this, there's got to be a genuine conversion in your life. There's got to be a moment when you trust Jesus as Savior. I don't care that your grandfather was a preacher, that your mama was a prayer warrior, or that your auntie teaches Sunday school. That's not going to get you into heaven. There has to be a moment that you trust Jesus as Savior. It is your commitment. It's nobody else's fault if you go to hell, and it's nobody else's issue if you're going to go to heaven. It is your decision that you have to make. And listen, there are several people in the room today 
Some of you that are watching digitally, I want you to know that God didn't bring you to watch what's happening right now by accident. This is a divine appointment for you to hear the gospel, to know the truth, and then leave you with a decision to make. You see, some of us watching in there or in this room, you might be an unbeliever. Now, you may be wearing a mask, acting like you are and, and playing the game of church, but as I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit of God has begun to quench your heart because you know that if you were to die before you get home today, you're not sure if you'd go to heaven. Well, the good news for you is I'm going to offer an invitation in just a moment where you can make that decision and never have doubts again. So we have unbelievers that are here today. We also have consumer Christians. You know, part of that 7.1 million that came into the life of the church and they, they made a decision, they got wet in the baptistry, but they're not necessarily growing in Christ. And that's where many of our people are today. But there's also what I call 2 Timothy 2, faithful, committed Christians. And those are the ones, listen to me, church, that's where we want to be. We want to be an all-in, 100%. God, anything you ask me to do, anywhere you ask me to go, I'll go. Even if it's uncomfortable and even if it doesn't make sense. Well, the truth is, you've got to be a genuine, converted Christian. And that's going to bring peace. Because if I were to ask you to raise hands, there's a number of you in this place today and some of you who are watching at home who've gotten that phone call about cancer or have lost a loved one that you thought you would grow old with or has a child that's sick. You need to know that a converted life brings peace like you'll never understand any other way. And the converted life brings pain, right? Hey, anybody would agree with me that the devil don't play fair? Listen, I don't like him. You know, if I could, if I could spiritually punch him in the mouth, I would. And by the way, you can when you pray, that's what happens. But listen, it's like this, um, like this army staff, right? They're having this, these ba battles, and the general steps up, and you have the, the green team and the blue team, and he steps up in front of me. He said, listen, guys, we're not going to use bullets today. We're going to pretend, but listen, this is all out. And the winner is going to get a prize. You're going to get time off. You're going to get bonus pay. So, man, they're fired up. He says, instead of a knife, you're going to say stab, stab. Instead of bullets, you're going to say bang, bang. Instead of a grenade, you're going to say lob, lob. Boy, they're so excited. He says, one, two, three, go. They split out. They're running all over the army base. One of the soldiers comes around the corner and sees his opposing friend. He jumps up and he says, stab, stab. God didn't do anything. He said, bang, bang. God just turned at him and smiled. He said, lob, lob. God just started laughing at him. Boy, it made the soldier mad. He threw his bag down. He said, listen. I know we're playing pretend here, but he said, this is a real exercise. I said, stab, stab, you did nothing. I said, bang, bang, you did nothing. I said, lob, lob, you did nothing. What's your problem? He said, rumble, rumble, I'm a tank. <laughs> you see, friends, listen. The devil's not going to play fair. You got a goal for what you, what you want your family to look like, don't you? Like you got dreams of what you want your kids to accomplish in academics, maybe in athletics, for the grandkids that love Jesus that you want them to have. 
and the devil's coming after you. And there's never been a greater moment in history to be attached with the church and in the local church than it is right now. Because there is strength in numbers. There is encouragement and there is wisdom when the people of God meet together. In person, digitally, whichever. Well, that converted life is important. Here's the second thing. The abiding Christian learns to live a surrendered life to the Holy Spirit. And that surrendered life is an inward daily surrender. So can I just tell you that the most foundational thing that you can do as a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not necessarily to walk into this place on Sunday morning. The most foundational thing, it's really not even to be involved in that small group, which I think is absolutely critical. The most foundational thing that you can do as a follower of Jesus Christ is spend time in the Word, in praying, marinating on the very Word of God. Do you know that if World War III happens and the right people come together against us, we won't win? I hope you are aware of the craziness, the chaos that is happening, not in America, just, not just talking about COVID. I'm talking about the chaos that has been happening all over the world. We are one poor decision, one stupid action away from World War III. And if that happens and we don't win, you know what's going to happen? You will not be able to walk back into First Baptist Church in Brunswick freely and worship God openly. Listen closely, church. If that happens, how many of your spiritual life is going to fall apart because you are dependent on your pastor to give you the Word of God? There's not a single place in the Scripture that indicates you ought to be dependent on a human to get the Word of God. Group leaders, small group leaders on Sunday morning, your people shouldn't be dependent on you to give them the Word of God. Did you know Then when this whole thing developed, whether you're talking about small group or Sunday school or connect groups or whatever, the design was that people were studying the Word of God before they ever get to your group. And then what happens in your group is an overflow of what God's been doing already all week long. And then when you leave the group and you come into worship, Pastor Chris, as funny as he is, doesn't have to do a dog and pony show to get you warmed up because you are already fired up and excited about the Word of God and just give me an extra dose of the Holy Ghost. When you walk into this place and you're just raising the roost, the volume is explosive because of what God's been doing all week long. But here's what's been happening. Matter of fact, all across America right now, here's what's happening in churches. Millions of believers are gathered in worship assemblies just like this to come in and sniff what their pastor has been cooking all week long. You say, those pastors, you don't understand how long and how much commitment and dedication it takes to exegete a passage of Scripture. The responsibility that these, these people have when they speak the Word of God to handle that appropriately He's going to be judged for how he handles the Word of God and how he gives that to you every single week that it takes to work through that and then to find angles and a theme and a way to make that practical for you so that you leave here feeling, oh, man, what a word from the Lord, right? 
So typically the problem is in most churches, the only people that are being discipled coming out of the worship service is your pastor because he did all the work. That was never the intent. What should happen when you walk into this place is an overflow of what God's been doing all week long in your prayer life that's vibrant, in a marinating on the Word of God, and you're learning and you're sharing that, and you're looking for open doors to, to share it with other people and to minister and to bless other people. Here's my question How many of you have ever gotten full by sniffing a meal? It doesn't happen, church. Your job, the most foundational thing that you can do because it's an inward daily surrender is be in the Word and spend time in the Word. You see, three and a half years ago, I've just been in Georgia a little less than two years. My little Australian lady on my phone still tells me how to get everywhere. But three and a half years ago, my wife and I started building our forever home in Louisiana. 16 acres in the middle of a 128-acre family track that butts up to 4,000 acres of federal land that has no public access. Any outdoorsmen, outdoors women in the room? You'll understand when I tell you that the biggest deer you've ever seen in your life, turkey, ducks, squirrels, hogs, alligator, fish, anything you ever want to do was off my back porch at that house. I'd been at my church for 16 years, had been called the healthiest church in Louisiana, grew from 200 to 1,000. When I left, we were running over 900 in our life group, which is Sunday school, and over 1,000 in worship. Matter of fact, we had four Sundays in December and January before I left where we had more people in the life group system than we even did in worship. I mean, people just explode. We have folks driving from 45 minutes to come to our church. You see, sometimes God shifts our priorities. And a guy asked me not too long ago, he said, man, how do you, when you're walking with the Lord and he, and he asks you to do something so ridiculous that from a human standpoint, it'll make any sense, how do you know it's for real? Like, how do you know you didn't just eat too much hot sauce the night before? Like, like how, do you, how do you give everything up? Let me give you five things of what God taught me through that process. Number one, the abiding life has grown accustomed to hearing God speak and seeing him move. You see, it's like Elijah, chapter 18, right? When he's with the bell and they pour all the water, you know, and he prays and asks, and God just fires it up, right? That wasn't the first time Elijah had prayed. In chapter 17, he had prayed and raised a dead woman to life. You see, when you're abiding in Christ, there are markers, there are steps where you can see where God is speaking along the way. And then when he begins to speak, it's not a foreign thing. That's why you can't wait until you get to a certain age or a certain phase or a certain time of life to decide you want to walk with the Lord. Teenagers, do you hear me? The greatest thing that you can do is walk with Jesus now so that when you're in college and you're out of college and you're a new Christian and a new mom and a new husband and a new dad, you already know what it's like to hear from God and he's leading you to do things and then your kids grow up in an environment where it's usual to hear from God and not unusual. Second thing was this, confirmed it in scripture. See, my family has a a family devotion. Now, I've got a 26-year-old adopted daughter, a 25-year-old son, and I've got a 9 and a 10, right? So, like, starting over at my house. What we do with my 9 and 10, every night we'll 
we're hanging out, we go to bed, we'll talk, we'll read scripture. So I've gotten to a point where I ask my kids questions. So we, we may read 1 Kings 18 about Elijah, but then I'm asking questions. Because I've gotten to a point where I don't want my kids to just know the Bible stories. I want them to be able to verbalize their faith. Are you hearing me, church? We've got to be able to, to speak what we believe and, and, and why we believe that. And then we'll pray over them. I'll grab my kid's head. I'll look Caleb or Noah in the eye and I said, son, I love you. And tonight I give you my blessing to be awesome. And I'll kiss him on the forehead. Why would I do that? Because I want my boys to know Jesus in a vibrant, living way and not live off of the faith of their daddy. Listen to me, friends. Mark called me about coming here on a Tuesday, Tuesday night. You know what our family devotion was on? And I didn't pick it. We're going like a systematic reading of the story was on Abraham leaving everything that he knew and going to a, a land that he didn't even know where he was going. And God had tell him, he just told him to go. And I was like, Wednesday night, the devotion was Abraham and Isaac. What are you willing to give up to follow the Lord? You see, God will, will confirm things through Scripture. Also, godly wisdom. The Lord had placed uh, just strong wisdom around me, and I began to ask those folks. Number four was this, God's hand through markers. I could see in markers in my life how God had prepared me and do, did certain things that premiered, prepared me for what we're doing and helping churches become disciple-making churches. And then the fifth one is prayer. You see, when Mark called me, I turned him down. I said, absolutely not, bro. As I'm six weeks out from moving in my forever home. I mean, I'm drenched in sweat, covered in dirt and tar. I've been working on the house all day because I literally did a lot, some of the house. I've got 125, uh, 125 hours on a track hoe building a road back 1,400 foot onto the top of this ridge in the middle of a swamp. We, we prepared the, the pad. We knocked down trees. We burned over 150 stumps. And he said, yeah, well, I, I understand. I said, well, tell me what you're looking for. And as he began to tell me what he was looking for, the Holy Spirit of God brought back a prayer that I had prayed in 2012 when I started my doctoral work. When I said, God, would you give me a disciple-making strategy that will work in Houghton, but would be transferable anywhere in the country? And I was like, oh, Lord, surely not. But see, the markers were lining up. God was confirming things through prayer. Well, that surrendered life to the Holy Spirit, it's an inward daily surrender, but it also requires an outward daily serving. When God speaks, then the ball's in your court. You got to move. You got to do what he calls you to do, even if that's uncomfortable for you. Here's a third thing. An abiding disciple of Jesus pursues an uncommon commitment. You see, it requires us to think and live beyond borders. I, I call it becoming a third mile Christian, right? You've heard about it. Hey, second mile, when somebody asks something from you, you go the second mile. You know what would be unusual for our culture is if you and I as Christians went the third mile when they realize you didn't just do something so you'll come to their church. You blessed them and you don't have any desire to get anything from them you just wanted to be an avenue that God was using to touch the world. It's about being a third mile Christian. And it's important as we serve the Lord. And the disciples did that. 
Did you know that Jesus had a model that he was following? Matter of fact, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever speak in a large group? Yeah, Sea of Galilee, remember? Had to get back out of the boat. They're gathered around him. He had Christians, you had non-Christians. Given the Beatitudes. I mean, there were times he spoke in the large group. And church, listen closely. You need to be under the authority and the teaching of God's word through your pastor. You need to be involved here, whether it's face-to-face, which obviously we would say is more personal and is preferable. But listen, those of you who are watching digitally, you are just as valuable as the people who are in this building. This church loves you and wants to minister to you and with you. But Jesus, did Jesus ever have a small group of 12? At one point, 11, but basically 12, right? He did. He invested his life in them. Did you know that Jesus didn't just teach them a lesson on Sunday and then say, hey, we'll see you guys next Sunday? What did Jesus do? He did life with them along the way because he taught a lesson and then he was given accountability and he was given encouragement and he was doing life until they got to the point of maturity he could launch them. And it was never his intent to create a group where you, listen church, where you as the church stay in the group for the rest of your life. Because connection is not the goal. Christ-likeness is the goal. Did Jesus have a smaller group? Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Right, remember the 12 and he tells them, you know, stay awake, you know, don't go to sleep. Remember what it said? It says he took Peter, James, and John a little bit further. And did you know that's not the only time that he did something with Peter, James, and John? Who was with him at the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. So it appears that Jesus had the 12 he's doing life with, but he even had a more core group where he's investing in and saying things and doing things even in the smaller group that he didn't do with the 12 and became his leadership pipeline. And the basis of what we do in the church comes out of that. Of course, we talked about one-on-one is the most foundational thing that you do. Listen, abiding life means that you got to be willing to take the next step in following the Lord. Lean in, church, for just a moment. For many of you in this place, your next step is that you've got to transition from thinking you're a good Christian by being in this worship service and start connecting in a small group, in a group of believers where you're being taught the Word of God, where there's accountability, and where you're doing life with people. Because did you know in this building, if you don't show up in this building next week, and this is the only thing that you're interacting with, most people in this building are not going to miss you because there's no accountability. They're not doing life with you, but that happens in your group. Let me tell you about Mark Jinks. Mark is in charge of hundreds of millions of dollars with a communication company that you would know well. He was in my church, created this D group like I'm taught, that Peter, James, and John. We called it a journey group, right? So we were in the same life group the Sunday morning, but I grabbed three other guys, and we were meeting every couple of weeks, digging deeper and just going verse by verse, reading through the book of John and studying and asking hard questions. It was on the property I was telling you about. It was on my bad boy buggy. We're riding across this ridge. We're trying to smack some hogs. And he said, man, I... He said, I got a drinking problem. So I grabbed a bottle of water and threw it to him. Now he said, no, like, I'm an alcoholic. And I was, I was what? 
are you messing with me? And he said, man, and he's, I guess now he's 51. He said, I've been an alcoholic since I was 14. I said, how is that even possible? How can you be an alcoholic at 14? He said, my dad was, it was in the house. I started drinking. He said, have you ever seen me ever since we've moved here four years ago? Have you ever seen me without a bottle of water? I said, come to think of it, no, because you're one of the healthy, I mean, trim, fit, guy walks, works out. I said, I I think I've ever seen you without a bottle of water. He said, it's not water, it's vodka. Because I've learned to drink and I just live in a state of semi-drunk and people just kind of think that's who I am. My wife knew that it's what I was, but she didn't know that's where I am. And he said, two weeks ago, I had a little bit too much to drink. And after I picked my daughter up from school, I passed out and we wrecked in the ditch. And my wife had to come pick us up because I couldn't drive. So I'm on a ridge with an alcoholic with two high caliber rifles in a bad boy buggy all by herself. Nobody knows where we are. So I asked Mark, I said, bro, how'd you get to this point where you would even say that to me? Because you know at this point I love you too much to not do anything. Like, I love you too much. We're going to figure out some way to get you help. And he said, man, that's why I'm telling you is because I know that I need help. And he said, because of the group we're a part of, it's the first time in my life that I trusted people to share the deepest hurt of my soul. You see, church, if you're not in a group, You'll never understand that level of intimacy. And we as guys, we are a stupid creature. Can, can we just agree with that? I don't understand intimacy. I don't do it well. You know, I've got the I'm not homosexual pat when I, when I grab. I'm, I just, I'm weird. I don't understand intimacy. But let me just tell you something. Church, listen closely. When you understand the depth of friendship that develops in one of those groups and you're all in and you trust them, you'll never want to go back. I did, I, in my, never in my life had I experienced that kind of intimacy. So at the end of the day, if you're not in a group, my prayer is that you will because it's going to require us to take next steps and it's going to require us sometimes to adjust personal pursuits like traveling, moving to Georgia. You see, I've You ever heard of a floating staircase? We built one in our house and it was built out of my dad's red iron from his barn that burned down. We repurposed it and created this floating staircase that goes up to the second floor. There were two inch white oak treads that were cut from 100 year old white oaks that I cut off the property in Milton Shreveport and my builder and I hand planed every one of them and stained them and put them on those treads. There was a safe room in it, seven by eight with a spin wheel safe door on it that I built with cinder block and rebar backfilled with concrete. And my builder and I lugged concrete onto the top of it to pour a concrete slab onto it. I mean, the, the house couldn't have been more personal. And literally the weekend that I was supposed to move in that house is the weekend that I moved to Georgia. And we never spent the night in the house. And people ask me, you know, why would you do that? I said, one, the last guy I know of ran from God, got eaten by a fish. (laughs) And I'm out on that. But listen closely, church. The bigger reason, you see, 
My greater concern is not what we left behind. My greater concern is allowing my wife and kids to miss when God's moving. Like when he, when he does something and he's speaking to you and he's leading you to do something crazy, if you choose comfort over gospel impact, you are setting the, traject- the trajectory of the rest of your life and your family. But now my boys are going to grow up in a house where they know what it's like to serve the Lord and make no sense. Let me ask you a question. Personally, professionally, and as a church, when's the last time you attempted something so big for God that you couldn't accomplish it unless he shows up? You see, church, the last thing I want you to know is an abiding disciple lays down lesser things for greater gain, and you'll never get to that point if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. I want you to lean in for the next few seconds because I want to share, share with you this whole journey that I'm on with my family. I want you to share, I want to share with you where this began, and it started when I was 10 years old. I came to my dad, who was chairman of deacons, and we were church all the time. I knew what the gospel was, but I had never made a decision. So I said, Lord, I said, would you tell me really what it means to be saved? I said, I think it's time for me to make that decision. Boy, my, my dad's eyes got big, and he smiled, and here's what he told me. He said, Romans 3.23 says that we're all sinners. He said, do you believe that? I said, especially my brother and sister. They're the worst. <laughs> I said, no, I'm just kidding. Like, like, Dad, seriously, you don't have to convince me. I know. Like, I knew that I was bad at the core of who I was. And he said, well, 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. He said, you know what a wage is? Man, I'm just thinking as a 10-year-old, I don't know. Like, if I mow the yard, you give me money? He said, yeah. It's like you, you do something and you have earned what you get. He said, because you're a sinner, you've earned physical and spiritual death. That's what's coming to you. And you don't have to do anything else for that to happen. And I'm like, oh. I was like, where's the good news in this? He said, the end of that verse says that the free gift of God is eternal life. And here's what he told me. He said, imagine, um, well, he asked you a question. He said, what is a gift? And I said, like a birthday? He said, yeah, imagine going in Christmas morning and your brother and your sister are there and you walk in and each of you have three presents. He said, what is the, the greatest present you could get? And as a 10-year-old, I knew exactly what it was. It was a mini bike, right? And I said, well, Dad, I would, it would be a mini bike. He said, you'll never get that. But in this illustration, let's assume it's under the tree. And let's assume it's got a bow and you just, like, you're looking at it and it's like the bucket list. This is like the coolest thing you've ever wanted. And he said, how crazy would it be if it's there and it's yours and it's got your name on it but you don't receive it you never open it and you walk away and I said dad that's the craziest thing I've ever heard he said I said why would I do that he said son to this point in your life that's what you've done with the gospel because Jesus has already provided the greatest gift that you could ever receive but you now here's the deal you can't earn it but you do have to receive it. And I'm just telling you as a 10-year-old, my little mind and heart just exploded and I just said, Dad, I need to pray and ask Jesus to save me. And we did right there. And not that I've been perfect, but my life has never been the same. So here's my question for you, church. Listen closely. 
whether you're watching digitally or in this room, are you sure that you've made a decision to trust Jesus as your Savior? That you have made a decision, not your parent, not your sister, sibling, or anybody else, have you made that decision? I'm gonna ask you right now, if you're in the congregation, if you'll stand, and I'm gonna ask you just to close your eyes and bow your head. That is not gonna make you more spiritual. I just want the next few moments to be free of distraction for you. With nobody looking, And let me be very clear. Is there anybody in this place this morning that would say, Brother Scott, I've got doubts about whether or not I'm a Christian. I'm not sure if I were to die tonight that I would go to heaven. Would you pray for me? Listen, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand to make eye contact with me. I'm going to look up in the balcony, anybody in the balcony. Raise that hand high where I can see it. Make eye contact with me. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you so much for your honesty. Down on the, on the bottom floor now, to my right and your left, anybody in this section that say, Brother Scott, I'm not sure. I got doubts. Would you pray for me? Lift that hand high. Make eye contact with me. Thank you for your honesty. Anybody else in this center section, I want to make sure that I make eye contact with you and know that you've raised your hand. Anybody in the center? Now to the left and your right. Anybody that would lift that hand, look me in the eye. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Thank you so much. I'm going to pray that God will give you the assurance and give you the next steps that are necessary for you to know that. Now, my last question for you is this. Is there anybody in this place, if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, here's what I'm going to do. Pastor Chris, I'm just going to lead in a gospel appeal. I'm going to say a prayer, and the prayer means nothing for you unless you mean this in your heart. But if you mean this from the depths of who you are, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God will come to take residence in your heart, that he will never, ever leave you. But my encouragement is that you don't leave this place today without knowing that the God of all creation is your Savior and lives in your heart. If you need to pray that prayer for the very first time, you pray with me digitally or in this room. And the prayer goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth, living a perfect life, and giving your life willingly on a cross for my sins and all creation. And right now, Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sins as far as the east is from the west and save me. And I commit to give you the rest of my life. Now here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you, if you prayed that prayer and you're online, I want you to put something in the chat. I want you to send a private message or to call the church office this week. We want to follow up with you to help you understand next steps. If you're in this place this morning 
then what I want to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you, when this service is over, we're not going to have a come down appeal. And I'm not going to ask you to come down here in front of all these people. If it was a real deal, if you genuinely prayed and asked Jesus to save you, I'm going to ask you to come talk to Pastor Chris or any of these staff members, and they'll talk with you about next steps. Father, we love you. I thank you for the blessing of being at First Baptist Brunswick. I pray your richest blessings on this church. There are some that are going to walk out of this place today, Lord. And they know that you are doing something big in their life that is scary. God, would you give them the courage and the wisdom to make a move, to make the next step as they follow you. For those who prayed and trusted you, Jesus, as the very, for the first time in their life, giving you all that they are and you've forgiven their sins and you've saved them. Give them the courage to step forward and to come. And Lord Jesus, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, friends, it's been a blast being with you. Love this church. I look forward to coming back another day. And I'm going to ask Britton if he would come up at this time. Uh, because my desire for you is always the next step. And he'll share with you what those next steps can be. Let's give a hand for Dr. Scott Scoldman. I was incredibly convicted this morning, and it's something I, I want us as a church to do. A lot of times we talk about a response time in a worship service. Here's what I don't want for us. I don't want our response to be, well, that was a great sermon. I want us to make an action step, and I want us to respond. Uh, in front of you, uh, in, in, in one of the chair backs, is going to be some of these cards. Uh, we're going to make this available to you uh, digitally and physically. There's these cards. If you want to do it digitally, uh, text the word First Disciple to 84576. And all we want to know is what is your next step today? We've mentioned it a lot, a lot during this time, but if you accepted Jesus Christ, there's a, there's a spot on you for, to, to, to check that, and, and we'll follow up with you uh, about how we can uh, get you baptized and begin the discipleship process. Some of us in here, we, we've, you've never joined a small group. You've never made that step into become vulnerable like Mark and Kelly shared earlier before the sermon and like Scott shared. We want you to do that. Check that box. I want to join a small group. Maybe you're already in a small group, but you say, I, I just want to go deeper. I want to go deeper in my discipleship. Uh, we have some ways for, for you to do that that we've been working on uh, for the past few months, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. So if you're in a small group already, but you want to go deeper, you can let us know. And then, and then something I'm reminded of in, in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, it says, some of you ought to be teachers by now. And I look at your church, and I'd say, in our challenge, some of us ought to be serving by now. Some of us ought to be doing these things. And so there's two spots for you to check if you want to serve in discipling the next generation. If you want to serve in discipling our kids, our, our children's ministry needs volunteers and teachers still in our student ministry, Pastor Ethan. If you want to serve in discipling the next generation, that may be you this morning. But there's an action step for all of us today. We're called to be disciples and, disciples and followers of Jesus. And how can we do that better than in this family of God? I did a discipleship school when I came out of college for two months. And this was talked about every single day. And, and it's always stuck with me. He said, you're found in God and you're formed in family. You're found here 
in the Lord. You're found in Christ, but your formation, your discipleship happens in family. And that's what this church is. So make that next step this morning, church. And uh, why don't you stand to your feet one more time and I'll pray and release us. Lord, thank you so much for Scott, for the words of challenging. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who does the work, who gives us faith. God, be with us as we go. God, help us to make that next step, God, in in growing in our discipleship and following you more closer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. See you next week.